Hey, fools, we pre-recorded this episode early in the week before firmer valuations were out from Snapchat, so there might be some minor differences in our discussion. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, February 17th, and we're talking tech and exploring Snap's IPO filing. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, how's it going? Mm, Pretty good, pretty good. Now, are you a Snapchat user? Do you have it on your phone? I recently downloaded it just to play around with it. And I mean, I've read plenty about it. I know how it works. I know the gist of it. But I I just started playing around with it. And it's really not intuitive or like easy to use. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I don't have a lot of people on there that I follow. So I'm not certainly don't have the full experience as like regular users. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't really see the appeal to it (laughs) it seems really niche to me yeah i'll say i am a snapchat user um i have a lot of my friends that use it um my interest will kind of wane depending on how often my friends are using it and that'll kind of bring me in or, or bring me out of the system so to speak but um it seems to be super popular with millennials and i think uh given a lot of the buzz with the company and the fact that it is a big tech company that is thinking about going public there are a lot of investors that are interested in it Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been so much hype around this thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it doesn't seem to me like it has the kind of mainstream appeal, which, of course, is the exact problem that Twitter has run into over the past few years. So I, I see a lot more comparisons, closer comparisons to Twitter than Facebook, which is the exact opposite storyline that Snap <laughs> is going to try to sell during its roadshow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and listeners, just to kind of give you an idea of what we're going to talk about today, give you a little overview of Snap, um, kind of the Snapchat property specifically, uh, talk a bit about their public, their plans to go public, and uh, just kind of what Evan and I noticed when we dug through the S1 that recently became available. Um, so we talked about they're they're a social media company, but they kind of build themselves as a camera company, which is interesting. Yeah, it's it's, it's I, I know this is really funny, like coincidence. I don't know if you call it coincidence, but like Snapchat used to consider itself a storytelling company, and now it's calling itself a camera company. Meanwhile, GoPro used to call itself a camera company, and now it's trying to call itself a storytelling company. So it's like, what what are these two companies like? <laughs> they have this weird identity, like. They want to be each other, and I don't get why, because it's not like GoPro's doing very well. And I don't know. Yeah, I think it's kind of a weird thing to rebrand themselves as a camera company because they barely make. I mean, they have the new spectacle glasses with cameras, but I don't know. It's just a weird identity to me. Yeah, and for listeners that might not be familiar with the social media platform Snapchat, basically you can think of it as a messaging platform where you are, for the most part, shooting. Um, quick, uh, what are kind of instantly deleted pictures and videos to you and your friends. You can also post them as stories. <clears throat> and so um, it's gained a lot of popularity with the millennial group. Um, user count is still kind of low. We can talk about that a little bit. But the company is planning to go public, looking to raise $3 billion via the public markets in an issuance that would value the whole company at somewhere between 20 and $25 billion. So as tech IPOs go, this might be one of the biggest ones for 2017. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's definitely the most excited, you know, the most looked forward to. People have been waiting for this thing for years. Yeah, and anything that's consumer facing is naturally going to have a lot more buzz to it. Yeah. Uh, I think that there might be some folks out there that are saying, "Well, wait a minute. I thought I saw an announcement that this company planned to IPO back in the fall of 2016. 
how come we're just getting the S1 and all the information about the company in the last couple of weeks? And that's because Snap opted to go public via the confidential IPO process. And this process and this approach is a byproduct of the 2012 Jumpstart Our Businesses Act. Basically, under this updated legislation, companies with under $1 billion in annual revenue can file paperwork for an IPO confidentially with the SEC. And that allows the company to kind of go back and forth with the regulatory agency uh, without alerting the public that they are planning on IPOing, although Snap chose to do so anyways. Um, and then once the company decides they do want to go forward with an issuance, um, the filing must be made public at least three weeks prior to the IPO roadshow beginning, which is when the underwriting investment banks begin talking to clients and building interest in a potential issuance. Um, this is all to say, while the confidential IPO name might sound kind of shady, this is something that is totally on the up and up, um, and, and that is the reason that we only got to look at the company's books and the S1 earlier this month, uh, even though they announced intentions to IPO a ways back. Right. I think part of the purpose is to kind of, like you mentioned, avoid the public scrutiny for the early drafts of the S1. I mean, all companies always have to file the S1, but this way they can kind of refine it without all the public scrutiny of like looking at it and scrutinizing it. And you know, I think the idea is to encourage more companies to explore the IPO process. And certainly if companies do end up going public, they get capital, more capital and, you know, just kind of boost the economy in, in terms of just, um, you know, more investments happening. So I think that's kind of the goal. But yeah, it, it is a little weird when you hear confidential. <laughs> yeah. And I think it also gives companies the opportunity to maybe think about going public and walk it back without sharing all of their business information publicly. Um, right, exactly. And, and so, you know, it, you can kind of test the waters and see if you're ready. And you might decide you're not, um, but uh, you don't have to go through the um, uh, maybe the, the question of your business practices if you think you're going to file and then have to publicly walk that back. And so, right, exactly. so that's part of it. There are some adjustments in the regulatory requirements for how far back a company needs to provide financial statements as well. But really, all in all, it's a tool that allows small growing companies to keep some of their core business info private and make the going public process a little bit easier. And that, that's really all there is to the um, confidential IPO process. Mm -hmm. So, given that the company's S1 filing became public earlier this month, I think it's fairly safe to assume we're going to see Snap trading on the New York Stock Exchange sometime in the next couple months, Evan. Yeah, seems seems like it's coming. Uh, considering that they are a social media company, I think it makes the most sense to start looking at their user base and, and what's going on there. Um, that is kind of the lifeblood of businesses like Facebook and Twitter, and Snap is really no different. Within their S1, they mention, we assess the health of our business by measuring daily active users because we believe that this metric is the most reliable way to understand engagement on our platform. And so, um, it's clear that this is what they're honing in on as a key metric, and I think that's what investors are going to be watching as well. Yeah, so uh, I, I did find it interesting that they do not disclose monthly active users. They only disclose daily active users, which are right around 160 million. Um, and w with social media companies, I always tend to look at sequential growth as opposed to year-over-year -year growth, just because user bases, that's just the nature of user bases. Is, there's no seasonality, you know what I mean? It's just how much can you grow over time. So I look at sequential, and in, uh, in that respect, Snap's growth is really decelerating. Like, it's it's grinding to a halt almost. And the company, like, tries to s explain this and saying, like, Oh, it's because we haven't come out with any big new product innovation, but it's 
I mean, of course, that that has an impact, but you also have to worry about competition because you know Facebook has done a really good job copying a lot of Snapchat's features, especially that Stories thing, which is now on Instagram. And Facebook already has basically, I think they have about 150 million daily active users using Stories now. So, and they launched that last year, and it's an exact replica. So, you have to wonder if that's take that's really what's taking a bite out of it. And obviously, Facebook is much bigger. They have more resources. They can innovate and develop faster. And this is, I mean, it's really just Mark Zuckerberg's and, and generally Silicon Valley's approach. I mean, not Snapchat's not based in Silicon Valley, but uh, Facebook certainly is. And Facebook, you know, if they try to buy them, if they can't buy them, they copy them and they compete. And that's exactly what they're doing. Um, and they're doing a really good job so far. So I think, you know, there, there is some concern about competition and whether or not Snap can really keep up. Yeah, and Facebook famously made Snapchat an offer. I believe it was uh, somewhere around $5 billion or so um, a little ways, little ways back. And CEO Evan Spiegel said, nope, we're going we're gonna to see what we can do with this on our own. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if they wind up going public at this gaudy valuation, it certainly works out well for him. But um, you wonder if that might have stoked the competitive fire in Mark Zuckerberg a little bit. I mean, he also empathized because he did the exact same thing with Google. That's, that's true. <laughs> you know, Google, so many people tried to buy Facebook, and he said, no, I want to do my own thing, and now Facebook is enormous, and he is one of the richest men in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard to blame him for that. To, uh, to put some numbers on what's going on with their user growth, um, like you said, year over year, the numbers look really great. They're up 48%, but sequentially, Q3 to Q4 of 2016, growth was only 3%. And so, you know, if you look at the graph that they provided in their S1, it does seem to seem uh, it does look like growth is kind of flattening out a little bit. And um, given that so much of uh, the expectation for these social platforms is continuing to build user base and then be able to monetize that user base really well, you have to worry about that as an ongoing risk for the business. Yeah, I mean, if they are a niche product, which it seems that way to me, then this could be it. I mean, and, and obviously 160 million daily users is a pretty big number, and you, you can build a, a healthy business there if you kind of don't, ex- or not trying to grow it, you know, just if you kind of keep your expectations modest and just try to build around that base. Whereas if you're trying to grow it and you're spending a ton of money trying to grow it and you can't, which is exactly the problem Twitter's having, then that's when... You, it just it starts to hurt financially, but if you just kind of like accept it what it is and you know plan your business accordingly, you can build a pretty decent business out of it. Yeah, and just for some context, I went back and looked at Facebook's S1 to see how they stacked up when they went public. And at the time, they had 480 million daily active users, and they were posting 48% year-over-year growth and 6% sequential growth. And you hear those, and you're like, well, those growth rates are kind of similar, right? But the difference was scale. I mean, even when they were doing single-digit sequential growth quarter to quarter, they were still adding tens of millions of users, not five million, as Snapchat did last quarter. And so, I like I think that that's a huge risk, especially as you see a more entrenched competitor taking what's working for you and has a lot of traction with the users that you already have on your platform, and just applying it to this massive user base that they have. Right. I mean, one thing Facebook it was interesting because they, they, you know, they started earlier, so before the really big rise of mobile. So a lot of their early days were on a desktop, and then they had to navigate the transition to mobile, which they'd done ridiculously well. Like 
far better than I think anyone would have ever imagined. <laughs> Whereas companies like Twitter and Snap, you know, they came out more on the kind of mobile from the beginning. Particularly Snap. I mean, Snap definitely. I mean, there is no desktop Snapchat. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, beyond the user base, uh, I think a lot of people want to know what's going on with the financials as well. In 2016, the company booked $404 million in revenue, up from $58 million in revenue in 2015. That is humongous growth, but that is on a very tiny denominator. Uh, the reality with Snapchat um, is they've really just kind of turned on the monetization engine there and have only really rolled out ads for a very short period of time. Um, right now, even it's still a pretty ad light experience for users. Yeah, and they only recently released their um, API to, to automate ad sales, which is a hugely important part of scaling your advertising business because it allows your advertisers to kind of you know do this automatically, and it's it's much less labor intensive to, to do it. So they literally only did this a few months ago, <laughs> um, and it's still in beta. <laughs> so I mean, it's very early days in terms of their ad business. And that's really what's going to be making up most of their money, for, you know, for Snap overall, right? I think advertising made up ninety-six percent of Snap's revenue in twenty sixteen. I don't expect that to change. We talked about how they have the spectacles as well, and you know, they build themselves as a camera company. There might be some hardware applications somewhere down the road, but in terms of a scalable, high-margin business, they're going to look to monetize the Snapchat platform first, just because if they can do it well, the opportunity is the biggest there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's. You can't make money on hardware <laughs> like those glasses. Like, yeah, you, you'll make maybe you might make a little bit of money, but the whole point of that is just get people using the platform. Exactly. Yeah, and and that just feeds into the idea of people posting to their stories and sending stuff to friends and and making that uh, video and picture capture a little bit easier. Right. Right. Looking down at their bottom line, they ran a five hundred million dollar loss in twenty sixteen, down even more from losses of three hundred and seventy million in twenty fifteen. The company is also free cash flow negative to the tune of six hundred and seventy million. Um, no surprise there. I mean, it's a high growth tech company. Very rarely are they profitable when they go public. Um, but uh, one thing I don't want to nitpick too much with costs. One line item that kind of popped out to me was general and administrative expenses are one hundred and sixty-five million, which is more than they spent in sales and marketing, and almost as much as the company spent in R and D. And they talk about how this is. Attributable to headcount increasing over 200% year over year, but from a corporate strategy perspective, it seems like they're sinking a ton of money into GNA. And I would think, if anything, the big money suck would be on the tech side and and gaining talent and kind of pushing the platform in a new direction. Right, particularly with them talking how important product innovation is to driving user growth, you'd think they would invest more in that. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I, I'm not too surprised at their costs in terms of their operating expenses. Um, I just don't know what they're gonna do next to try to really grow the platform more. You know, it's like where, why aren't they spending more money on R and D and like you mentioned, you know? Yeah, and and they're gonna have to, right? I mean, if you look at the current valuation, so we talked about how it's probably gonna wind up IPOing somewhere in the twenty billion to twenty five billion valuation range. That would mean that they are trading at sixty two times trailing sales, not earnings sales. Like that is that yeah, is a huge that, number. Yeah, that, that's ridiculous. Like I remember when Twitter and, and Facebook went public a few years back, and I was looking, and they were, you know, they both went public right around 25, 26 times sales. And back then, I was like, wow, that's really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> now, like sixty-two times sales, 
is like unheard of. Like it, it just speaks to the hype around this company. And of course, like the valuation is going to change, and we don't know what they're going to actually price the IPO at. So right now, it's everything's really preliminary, and they don't price the IPO until you know the night before it actually goes public. So, and and, and of course, that's all a function of how successful the roadshow is. Because if they can really drum up investor interest, or if they don't, conversely, then that's going to you know really drive what the IPO price is at. But there's the possibility that this goes higher if they have a really good roadshow, which. It's just insane. Like, can you imagine them getting to closer to 70-plus time sales, potentially? I mean, who knows at this point, but it's not, it's not, you know, impossible for that to happen. And it's just insane that this company would be able to command such a premium. <laughs> and, and I think another layer of context here, were it to IPO and have a valuation somewhere in the mid-20s, it would basically be valued at twice Twitter's current valuation. And according to analysts, Snapchat has more daily active users than Twitter, but Twitter brought in five times as much revenue last year. And so, you know, you think about like what a really successful ad launch would look like, and and building out the platform in a way that has non-invasive ads that don't really detract too much from user experience. And you start to get into that like 2.5 billion maybe annual ad revenue, and and kind of building on that, and they would be doing that at twice the valuation that Twitter is currently at. So it's just you look at the numbers and it's it's really tough to make it work the way it's currently priced. Yeah, I there's no way I'm touching this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond valuation and uh, you know some of the user growth issues, I know that you particularly wanted to hone in on some of the stuff with voting rights with the shares that they'll actually be issuing Evan. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because they're you know they're issue, the shares that they're selling to the public get zero votes, <laughs> like zero, not even one, like zero. <laughs> so which is you know like a lot of tech companies have been doing this thing for a long time where you know they they give the public shares one vote and then the insiders get these super voting shares with ten votes or more or whatever, and it allows the, con- the company's founders and insiders to to retain control no matter what. And I mean, Google is probably the biggest, earliest example of this. Um, and even right, even today, Google collectively, all the insiders between executives and the directors, they collectively control about sixty percent of the voting power. So, public investors really have no say. They can't, you know, they have no, they, if they disagree with something, they have no recourse. Um, and Facebook is, of course, another good example with Zuckerberg himself personally controlling about 60% of the voting power. So he doesn't even have to ask anyone. He just does whatever he wants. Um, so, I mean, like, it's the question is, like, is it really a big deal? Because investors are now kind of used to this idea that they don't get a say in how these companies are run. So, Snap, what's that? The difference of Snap is basically being upfront and being like, you know what? You're not even getting, you don't even get to pretend like you have a say. <laughs> so, it's not clear if that's. I mean, certainly, it's it's all bad from a corporate governance perspective on principle, because obviously it's better for shareholders to have a say. Um, but at the same time, you can see that it's worked quite well for companies like Google and Facebook. Because I mean, imagine Google like if face if Google shareholders had a vote in telling Google not to do all this random side stuff that they explore, you could argue that the company wouldn't be as successful today as it has been. So, you know, th- there is a case to be made that. This is a good thing in, in in some in some situations, but we don't know how it's going to play out for Snap. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that I kind of have a bone to pick with it is 
you have the two company co-founders, Evan Spiegel, the CEO, and Robert Murphy, the CTO. And they are the sole owners of these super voting Class C shares, which get 10 votes. And any Class Bs or Cs that are sold or transferred automatically convert to the Class As. Mm-hmm. And so, the, the non-voting shares, right? And so, um, anything that would happen with them, uh, they have a super majority, and anything that might happen would continue to concentrate that power, right? And so, you know, you look at these tech companies later on issuing non-voting shares, or you know, with Facebook um, deciding that they want to split its stock and issue C shares so that Mark Zuckerberg can retain his control over the company and be able to give away the non-voting shares through his charitable efforts. Mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg has demonstrated that he is the right combination of that tech-forward thinking and the business savvy in order to run one of the world's biggest companies and do it incredibly successfully. Spiegel and Murphy don't have that track record. Right. I mean, Zuckerberg has definitely earned some respect. You know, he, he's, he's, like you said, he's, he's really demonstrated that he can execute on these kind of bigger picture strategies and, you know, growing Facebook in the way that he has. Uh, and the stock split thing is funny just because, like, like, like we were saying, like, he can he voted it in personally, single handedly. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't matter if you didn't like the stock split, which hasn't actually occurred yet, even though it's been approved because he said it would happen. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's you really need to trust these founders. And Spiegel is like twenty six or twenty seven, you know. And of course, like Zuckerberg was too back you know, a few years back. But I mean, you know, to your point, he just doesn't have a track record and. And I th- it's like, what has he done beyond just kind of creating Snapchat? Like, can, you can't really point to any single great business move and be like, oh, that was a really smart strategy or that was a really good move. You know, like, so you, you, you got to have a lot of faith. Mm. One of the other things that I'm seeing a lot of people talk about uh, digging through the S1 and, and just kind of doing their homework on the company is the company's cloud strategy. Yeah, I think um, this is really an interesting topic for me because Snapchat is doing something that's really kind of unprecedented in terms of how they're approaching their cloud infrastructure. Because most of the time when companies are are launching these apps and online services and consumer-based products, eventually after they get to a certain point, they start investing in their own infrastructure, either by building their own data centers and servers in co-located facilities they share with other companies or building their own. Uh, Facebook has is building its seventh data center that it's fully owned. Twitter co-locates its data centers. Um, Whereas Snap is not doing any of that. Snap is relying 100% on third-party cloud infrastructure providers, Google Cloud and and Amazon AWS. And it's it's just crazy because the scale at which they're operating would normally require or normally make sense to start investing in it yourself. But Snap is content to basically continue to do this through third parties, which... It's not clear if this is going to work because no one's ever really tried this before. So it's kind of this huge experiment, um, and there's there are a lot of risks because you don't get to control your infrastructure and your back end, which is incredibly important to your business, and you're also spending a ton of money. Uh, I mean, obviously, building the infrastructure yourself costs a ridiculous amount of money, but over time, it it'll, it'll, it'll eventually pay for itself. Um, so what Snap is doing is they've committed to spending $3 billion total over the next five years between Google and Amazon combined. Google is the primary provider, and Amazon's basically a backup. Uh, they're spending $400 million a year on Google, and 
the the spending commitment on Amazon ramps up, so it starts at like fifty million, and then it's like three fifty by the end. But that's a huge spending commitment, and this is very specifically their largest cost. Like, if you look at their financials, the cost of revenue is predominantly composed of these infrastructure costs, and cost revenue is greater than revenue. So they, they have a negative gross margin right now because of this strategy, very specifically. And at the same time, because of these long-term commitments, the pressure is now on for the ad business. Like, you have to grow ad business, the ad sales to these levels to even just to keep up with them, to break even on a, on gross profit. Before we even start talking about operating expenses, like so, the the pressure to grow the ad business is incredibly high, and they have almost no experience doing that. So it, it's a huge risk, not only operationally, but it's also a huge risk financially because if you are unable to grow your ad business enough to co- cover these costs, you're just going to be hemorrhaging cash. And yeah, it doesn't matter how popular the, the service is. If you're just blowing through money and you can't really bring in enough to cover these costs, it's not sustainable. So, I mean, it, 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 we don't know if they'll be able to do it or not. But the point is just the risk that's there. It, it's insane. Like, they have to, like, really turn up these ad sales just to cover their spending commitments. Yeah, beyond all of the general investor interest in Snap uh, that will undoubtedly be there for the next you know couple of years, and beyond, uh, I think there will be a lot of tech insiders kind of watching this decision, and you know, if it works, maybe using it as a blueprint and deciding that it allows the company to be more nimble. But um, you have to wonder about the company's ability to control costs and really just have total control over what's going on with the IT infrastructure, um, because that's how everyone is inter- interacting with your product, right? I mean. So- yeah, I mean, I mean, everyone in the cloud in the cloud infrastructure market is watching very closely because they're like, "Whoa, this is crazy! How much this company is spending?" And it's a big, it's a great news for the cloud infrastructure market, of course, because it's one of the biggest customers out there, right? And I mean, they're bringing in a lot of money, and everyone's going to see if this can really work. Um, and, I mean, it's worth noting that Snap is kind of leaving itself. It's hedging a little bit, saying it might eventually. Because in the S1, it says they may choose to invest in its own infrastructure at some point. And a few months ago, they actually poached Amazon's head of data centers for AWS. So it's kind of like there are some hints that they're really exploring the idea of doing their own infrastructure. But at the same time, it probably wouldn't be for the next five years because of these commitments. But So yeah, they're, they're still kind of leaving themselves out. But it's it just seems really risky and crazy. I mean, it, it might work out great. Like it could end up being really, you know, because yeah, the the in the event that things go down, like let's say that the service just crashes and users just, you know, then that does let them ramp down variable costs with more flexibility as opposed to like if you spend all this money to build this infrastructure and then let's say the service dies for whatever reason theoretically, then you're stuck with all this. This infrastructure that you paid all this money for, versus just paying it as a variable expense based on usage. So I mean, it's it's going to be it's going to be something that's going to be really interesting to see play out. Not just because of Snap, but also because of the implications for the bigger companies that are providing these services, like Amazon and Google, and also Microsoft. Right? Microsoft Azure would certainly love to get a piece of that spending. Um, but yeah, I think it has a lot of implications for the broader infrastructure market. So to bring it back around to the stock itself and kind of how we're looking at it, it seems like you and I are kind of in the same camp here, where we have some concerns over user growth, 
the valuation as it's currently being reported, you know, we'll see what happens after they run through the roadshow, but the valuation is rich and a little too rich uh, for us to even really look at too much. And we have a lot of questions about the competitive risks with some of the, you know, with, with Facebook and Instagram really looming out there and possibly being able to just grab features and drop it on their installed base. Um, does, does that wrap up how we feel about Snap? Anything else you want to add in there, Evan? Yeah, I would. I don't think Snap's investable, honestly. Like, it, it just, there's so many risks. The financials don't make sense. The valuation doesn't make sense. You get no voting. Like, I, I, I don't doubt that shares will pop from the offering just because the hype but as we've seen with many overhyped ipos in recent years like it does it takes a f- it only takes a few months for the market to sober up and then plus the there the um snap's also doing a different thing with lockup period so um employees will be able to sell sooner the lockup expires for employees sooner than is typical like normally it's about 180 days and they're they're gonna allow their employees to sell at 150 days along with all the co-founders so there could be some selling pressure as all these investors cash out and employees cash out and you know like they're gonna make the employees and all that uh, insiders they're gonna make a ton of money but as far as public investors go i I don't know and it's also worth mentioning that their stock-based compensation expenses so far are quite small because they're still private i think last year was like 30 some odd million which is a tiny proportion of their total expenses, right? Mm-hmm. But what you know, when the one companies go public, the liquidity event triggers the uh, ridiculously increase in compensation, stock-based compensation costs, because now that stock is worth so much more. Um, so you know, and, and that's typical for all companies that go public, is right after they go public, they have a huge increase in stock-based comp. Um, so that's something to be aware is, is coming. Plus, they're gonna probably going to start unloading pretty quickly. <laughs> so I don't I just I don't I just don't see a lot of after the initial kind of honeymoon, I don't see how this thing can really go up even further after it's already at such ridiculous level. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like no, I'm I am absolutely with you. And and listeners, you can be sure that as details start to crystallize and we get a better sense of what's going to be happening with the Snap IPO, uh, we'll be sure to do an update on this episode um, as market conditions clear up a little bit. But um, for now, I think that does it, huh, Evan? Yeah, yeah, I think we hit it. All right. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say, hey, you can always shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. Tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. We love getting listener questions, so please shoot them to us. If you're looking for any more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.